from Gold Hill Church, which is in Chalfont St. Peter, which is just down the road, really about 20, 25 minutes for me to get here this morning. I've been there for the last 46 years, and uh, that's the reason my hair is this color, as uh, I've been part of the leadership there over these years. And uh, I'm now called the Pastor Emeritus. And uh, I just mentioned that just to impress you. That's really, uh, you probably have no idea what Pastor Emeritus means. It means basically that I'm past my shelf life. And, uh, but I'm still there and part of the pastoral team that's there. I met up with Pastor Philip on Thursday morning and uh, I said to him that I felt that God had given me a word for you for today. And uh, I didn't share all of it, but I did share the main substance of it. And actually, he didn't forbid me to bring this word. In fact, he encouraged me to do so, and so I'm going to do that. If you had a Bible, and it would be very helpful if you had sight of a Bible, if you could turn to the Acts of the Apostles, which is the fifth book in the New Testament. There are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then the history book of the, uh, the New Testament called Acts. And if you would turn to chapter 19, but I want to read some verses at the beginning of chapter 19 of uh, the Acts of the Apostles. Uh, I used to go to South Korea, went there for 17 years, year on year on year, went in the late spring into the early summer, and uh, it became really my second spiritual home. So I'm very, very fond of the South Koreans. And I remember uh, traveling from Heathrow to Incheon Airport, which is the, the airport outside the capital city of Seoul. And uh, the pastor, the senior pastor of the church that uh, I was going to, and I went to regularly, year on, on year, he'd come to meet me with some of his friends, and we got into their cars, and we were driving back into Seoul, and uh, he said to me, uh, I've, I've gathered my deacons together tonight. Now, it's about a 14-hour air flight to get from London to Seoul, and they're eight hours ahead of us. And so I must confess that I wasn't expecting to speak at a meeting that night. I felt sweaty, tired, I needed a shower and a shave, and uh, I was a little bit hungry. But anyway, that was, that was the deal. And he said to me, uh, there are 507 deacons waiting for you. And uh, the, the congregation was 34,000, so 500 deacons is not too bad. And he said to me, I've gathered them together, and they've come with the expectation that they will all be baptized in the Holy Spirit tonight. So that was the challenge. And I mentioned that simply because I sense that the word that God has given me is that everybody in this church family today would be anointed in a fresh way with the Holy Spirit 
of the living God. I, I think that's the substance of the message that I wanted to bring to you. So let me read from Acts chapter 19 and uh, the first seven verses. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. And there, in Ephesus, he found some disciples. There were only 12 of them, actually, but that's what he found. And he asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when, or the text is a little bit uncertain, did you receive the Holy Spirit when or after you believed? They answered, no. We've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So the problem here. So Paul asked, then what baptism did you receive? And they replied, we received John's baptism. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, look at it, or listen to it, verse 5, on hearing this, they were baptized into or in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then verse 6 goes on to say, when Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues. I must confess, I'm, I'm not too happy with that word, tongues. It's certainly in the sort of Christian environment, sometimes it's uh, a bit controversial. We're talking here about a language, a language that has grammar, that has vocabulary, that has form, that has syntax. It is a language that the difficulty is that the people who speak in tongues or in this language have never learned it. It's just a language which the Holy Spirit gives. So that's what happened to them. Uh, he played, Paul placed his hands on them. The Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke in languages that they had never learned. And they prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. Now, you're probably not all that interested, but I think it's important that I, I mention to you that there's quite a bit of controversy over whether these 12 men were Christians or not. And I need to declare myself right at the beginning, I think they were, for two reasons. First of all, they're called disciples. Uh, right at the very end of verse 1, Paul took the road through the interior, arrived at Ephesus, and there he found some disciples. Now, this is written by a doctor, a man called Luke, Dr. Luke. And doctors are accustomed to accurate clinical uh, diagnosis. That's, that's their profession. They're there to be specific and clear about what it is they're doing. And so this man, Dr. Luke, calls them disciples. And uh, the original word that's in the text, you're not the slightest bit interested, but I'm just telling you, it's, the word is mathetes. And that's a word that's used of Jews who became followers of Jesus. 
It's used of the 12 apostles. It's used of those who, I'm using a little phrase, abide in Jesus' word. It's used widely in the whole of the 28 chapters of the Acts of the Apostles of those who believed in Jesus, not only believed in him, but confessed him. So I've come to the conclusion, first of all, because they are recognized by Paul for what they are. They are disciples of Jesus. Anyway, the second reason is that in that, uh, when I was reading that little part, these seven verses, uh, Paul uh, says to them, then what baptism did you receive? And they say, this is verse 3, they replied, John's baptism. Paul said John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, but he told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. So these guys, these 12 men, first of all knew the fear of God. The fear of God had been put into them by John the Baptist. Jesus calls him the greatest prophet. If you, if you read uh, John's message in Matthew chapter 3 and verses 1 to 12, I doubt that Pastor Philip or I would be too eager to preach the message that John the Baptist preached to these people. He calls them a brood of vipers, these snakes. So he's not very complimentary to them. He really goes for the jugular and gets a grip of them. And these are Jewish people that he's speaking to. So they knew the fear of God. They also knew about the forgiveness of Jesus because John's message is not only that they would repent, but they would believe in the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So they not only had the fear of God in them, but they had known or they came into the reality of the forgiveness of Jesus. And then thirdly, they knew about the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Anybody who had been baptized by John the Baptist knew that there was something more that was going to happen to them. Part of the difficulty is that they didn't have emails in those days they didn't even have telephones in those days. They didn't even have a postal system in those days. And so they actually didn't really know that Acts chapter 2 had happened. Anyway, that's my conclusion that these, these, uh, these guys were, were Christians. These 12 men were Christians. But there was something missing. And, and that's the point as Paul approaches them uh, on, on this occasion. Dr. Billy Graham, I would assume that most of you have heard of him, great evangelist, and he's now a very, very old man. Dr. Billy Graham said, everywhere I go, I find that God's people lack something. That's throughout America and throughout England and Britain and actually his ministry stretched right around the world. Everywhere I go, I find that God's people lack something. They are hungry for something. Their Christian experience is not all that they expected. Isn't that interesting? And they often have recurring defeat in their lives. 
Christians today are hungry for spiritual fulfillment. The most, listen, listen to what he says, the most desperate need of the nation today is that men and women who profess Jesus be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so, whatever was going on in that little group of 12 men in Ephesus, there, there was something lacking. My old teacher in, in Glasgow, uh, who was a great historian and a great Bible scholar, he, he said the early church was surging and seething with power. Now, if you walked into the church that I go to normally on a Sunday, I'm not sure what your reaction would be. Would you have the impression, as soon as you entered the door, that here is, is a group of people and that there's, there's something that you can't explain that's going on here. There's, there's an atmosphere, there's a, a climate. I don't know the word to use properly, but that this place is surging and seething with the power of God so that you're hardly able not only to sit in your seat or stand on your feet, you're, you're in worship, you're almost on your knees. You sense that just the power of God is here. Maybe prostrate. Uh, on your face in his, in his presence. And when the Word of God is, is preached, suddenly God is moving powerfully uh, and intrusively into our lives. And when an opportunity is given for some kind of response, there's, there's a desire for the power of God to come in, uh, in, in a, a remarkable way upon the people of God, thank you so much. So, that's what's going on here. Paul, when he arrived and met these 12 men, he didn't sense that they were surging and seething with power. You see, these early Christians, they didn't have degrees from the best universities. I'm not against that. I have a couple of degrees. I was at university for six years, but these, these guys, they didn't have any degrees. They... they uh, they hadn't been to management courses. They didn't, they didn't have the faintest clue about Myers-Briggs and uh, the, the process that people often go through. But hey, these, these early Christians had three things. I'd like you to hear this. Number one, they had a revelation of God. They were aware in a magnificent way of what God was like. He, was, he had no body. He was invisible. He had no birthdays. He was eternal. There were no boundaries to God. There were no, he's infinite. There, there were no boundaries to his presence. There were no boundaries to his, his power. There were no boundaries to his knowledge. These, these guys had a, a, a deep sense of a revelation of God. Secondly, they had a revelation of their inheritance in Jesus Christ. They had entered into a totally new dimension of living that was 
infused by the reality of Jesus. They didn't just have to sing songs about him. They knew what their inheritance was in Jesus. And thirdly, they knew the Holy Spirit's power from on high, that God was among them and God could do anything, not only with them, but to them. So these were the three things that um, characterized the early, the early church. And so when Paul arrives in chapter 19 of Acts uh, to this group of 12 men, he didn't sense that. So it's, it's for that reason that he says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when or after you believed? And actually, it seems like, as they say, they answered, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Now, the original translation is, uh, makes it, for me, makes it a bit clearer. We have not heard that the Holy Spirit is. You see, John told us that he would come, but we didn't know that he's here. And he's here. In fact, we didn't know that. That's what's going on here. And so I, I, wrote, down, I wrote down really for the benefit of, of my own church, but I want to share it with you. What would, come on guys, what would the, what would, if the Holy Spirit is among us in surging and seething power, what what would be the evidences? Now, I've written down some stuff here. I wrote down eight things. Number one, there'd be a new sense of God's presence. God is here. Secondly, there would be an awareness of the dynamic reality of God's power, that God could do anything. Thirdly, there'd be a sense of the immediacy of God's kingdom. You see, Jesus' message was the kingdom of God is among you. Fourthly, there would be a fresh, ant fresh anticipation and experience of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. You see, some of us do a lot of talking about the gifts of the Spirit, and we have a theology of the gifts of the Spirit. But I, frankly, as I travel the country, I don't always see the evidence of that. And then fifthly, there would be an upsurge of praise and a demonstration of worship. You see, it seems to me that praise is that, whereas worship is this. See, worship is, is much more than singing. Worship is about submission. Worship is about surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Sixthly, there would be a new unity of heart and spirit. Little things that upset relationships among us would be put in perspective, and we'd see the big picture of the kingdom of God among us, and we'd see the pettiness and the smallness and the humanness of some of the things that cause us to quarrel even within the church of the living God. So a new unity of heart and spirit. And then number seven, there would be an increasing desire to be a witness. You see, as we, we gather, this is the church gathered. 
but about just after midday, before one o'clock, we'll be scattered. We'll be the church scattered. And with courtesy and humility and sensitivity and appropriateness, we would want to share Jesus wherever we go. And the eighth thing that I put down, if we were surging and seething with power, the eighth thing is that there would be a willing submission to godly biblical leadership. Not grudgingly, but eagerly, because this is the purpose of God for us. So anyway, I mean, you need to make up your own mind about this. How, how would you distinguish that a congregation is surging and seething with the power of God. Uh, I have a, a hero, uh, I've got one or two heroes, and one of the, uh, the people who's my heroes uh, is a man called A.W. Tozer. And Dr. Tozer says it, listen to this. He says, Satan has opposed the doctrine of the spirit-filled life about as bitterly as any doctrine there is. He has confused it. He has opposed it. He has surrounded it with false notions and fears. He has blocked every effort of the church of Christ to receive from the Father the divine and blood-bought patrimony. The church has tragically neglected this great liberating truth. Listen, that there is now, for the child of God, a full and wonderful and completely satisfying anointing with the Holy Spirit. Listen to this sentence. The Spirit-filled life is not a special deluxe edition of Christianity. It's part and parcel of the total plan of God for His people. I don't know where you're at this morning. Nobody's told me. But I just sense, brothers and sisters, that as Jesus walks among us, he wants to anoint us afresh with his Holy Spirit. Thank God for the past. You see, it was 24 years after I became a Christian. I became a Christian as a teenage boy, but it was 24 years after that before my Christianity was completed. And on a July night, Wednesday night, way back in 1968, Jesus baptized me in the Holy Spirit. And that was a very special occurrence for me, but there, there, there was one baptism, but there, there needs to be a constant anointing and refreshing and renewal and releasing in the Spirit. And I sense that that's what God brought us together for this morning so that we would know the anointing of the Lord Jesus. Let me share a story that I found very interesting in light of what I've just been speaking about. I don't know if you've ever heard of a, an American evangelist called D.L. Moody. My grandfather uh, used to speak of him with great reverence. He came across the Atlantic to the United Kingdom, came to Scotland, so he must have been a very brave man. And uh, my grandfather had been to his meetings. My father spoke of him often, 
and he had a, a, a singer that went a, a, around with him. There was Moody and a man called Sankey. And they, they, they did these big crusade meetings. Well, it's about D.L. Moody that uh, this, this story is, is told. The year was 1871. D.L. Moody realized more and more how inadequate he was for the enormous challenge of the work ahead of him. And listen, an intense hunger and thirst for spiritual power were aroused in him by two women who used to attend the meetings and sit on the front seat. Hey, hey. (laughs) He could see by the expression on their faces that they were praying. Hey, hey. (laughs) At the close of the services, they would say to him, We have been praying for you, Mr. Moody. Mr. Moody would say, why don't you pray for the people? And they would say, because you need the power of the Spirit. D.L. Moody said, I need the power? In relating this incident later, he said, I thought I had power. I had, listen, I had the largest congregations in Chicago, and there were many conversions. I was, in a sense, satisfied. But right along, these two godly women kept praying for me, and their earnest talk about anointing for special service set me thinking. I asked them to come and talk with me, and they poured out their hearts in prayer that I might receive the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Listen to what he says. There came into my heart a great hunger, a great hunger into my soul. I did not know what it was. I began to cry out as I never did before. I really felt that I didn't want to live if I couldn't have this power for service. D.L. Moody tells the story of being in New York sometime later, and he was walking along a street, actually Wall Street, and the power of God came on him. To such an extent, he had to look for a house, for the house of somebody he knew, and asked if he could have room for him. Imagine, imagine going to a door and knocking at the door. But the power of God had come on him. And the person who's there, even though he knows you, opens the door and he said, oh. And he said, well, please let me in. I need a room because the power of God has come. I mean, can you imagine that? And so D.L. Moody was anointed with the spirit of the living God. Hey, guys, don't you want this? I mean, this, as, as A.W. Tozer says, this isn't deluxe Christianity. This This is biblical Christianity. That's what the Bible teaches. So let's go back to the text that's that's here. You see, if belief in Jesus and the baptism in the Holy Spirit are synonymous, then verse 6 is a mystery. Look at verse 5. On hearing this, they were baptized in or into the name of the Lord Jesus. But hey, there was something more. When Paul placed his hands on him, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues, and they prophesied. 
guys, I would need to say to you this. As I read this passage, I almost became a Pentecostal. Because this is about a second blessing. Not for holiness, but for helplessness. That there needs to be the anointing of the Spirit to enable us to be what God has called us to be. Actually, I'm really not interested in becoming a Pentecostal or a Baptist for that matter. I don't want to be biblical. And this is what the Bible teaches. You see, Paul ought to have been finished with them in verse 5. Because if you'd asked the same question of verse 2, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? At the end of verse 5, you'd still get the same answer. The answer is no. And so Paul does three things. I'd like you to notice them. Number one, he places his hands on them. This, this is what we call the laying on of hands. Sometimes done for healing. Sometimes done for commissioning people who are going out to serve God in a specific and a special way. It's frequently done for the anointing or the baptism or the releasing of the Spirit in people's lives. So Paul places his hands on them. And then it says in verse 8, when Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them or upon them, not into them. You see, something had already happened in them. You can't be a Christian without the ministry of the Spirit of the living God, because to become a Christian is such a radical, life-transforming reality. You, you, you can't manufacture that for yourself. This is a God thing. But there's something more is happening here. Paul placed his hands on them, and the Holy Spirit came on them. So that's the second thing that happens here. And then it says they spoke in tongues and they prophesied. They began to overflow. See, my understanding is that the gift of tongues is the outpouring of my heart to God. It's my praise language. It's my prayer language. It's it's the, the, the overflow of what's within me when no longer do my usual language, does it do the job anymore. And, and God has given us another language, a praise and a prayer language to, to honor Him, to exalt Him, to worship Him, to, to praise Him. And so that's where the traffic is going. But actually, they not only spoke in tongues, they prophesied. So in tongues, they're pouring out their hearts to God. But here, God is responding because prophecy, the traffic is coming from God to man. This is the opening of God's heart to them. The sharing of God's feelings with them. And so there's a dialogue is set up. Isn't this? This is a, an amazing little passage of seven verses. So, what am I saying to you? Now there's dialogue. Now there's intimacy. 
Now there's contact between God and man, between heaven and earth, between the divine and the human, between eternity and history. This, this is what we're about, folks, as Christians. It's not simply coming to church on a Sunday morning. It is that. It's not simply singing songs. It is that. It's not simply saying prayers. It is that. It's not simply reading your Bible. It is that. But it's knowing the pulsating life of God because of Jesus and in the power of the Holy Spirit so that we are surging and seething with power. Wow. wow. How about that? Let me tell you what Jesus said. This is in Luke chapter 11, verses 9 to 13. This is what Jesus says. So I say to you, ask, and go on asking, and it will be given you. Seek, and go on seeking, and you will find. Knock, and go on knocking, and it will be, the door will be opened to you. Listen, for everyone who asks, receives. Wow. And he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. And Jesus is so concerned that you get it. Now, this is what he says. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? not going to happen. Or, if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. Hey, not going to happen. If you then, says Jesus, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. Listen, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. It's all right, isn't it? That'll do. You see, some don't ask because they don't know they're allowed to ask. But Jesus says ask. Some don't ask because they don't think there's anything else to ask for. Some don't ask because they don't want anything else. So they don't ask. Some don't ask because they don't think that they will be heard. And some don't ask because they don't think that they are worth anything. I don't know where this message leaves you this morning. But Jesus says, ask. And he who asks receives. There was an old Methodist leader, a man called Samuel Chadwick, who said the Holy Spirit doesn't come upon methods, comes upon people. The Holy Spirit doesn't anoint machinery, he anoints people. He doesn't work through organizations, he works through people. The Holy Spirit doesn't dwell in buildings, he dwells in people. 
He indwells the body of Christ. He directs its activities. He distributes its forces. And he empowers its members. And so, on this lovely autumn Sunday morning, the message that God put in my heart to come and share with you, that, that's the message. That everyone in this building would know a new anointing from Jesus. Come, Holy Spirit, to set me free, to give my heart your liberty, pour forth your love, my being fill, that I may do your holy will. Forgive my selfish, base desire, refine me with your cleansing, Father, that pure and selfless I may be, equipped and strengthened, Lord, by Thee. I own my weakness and my shame. I have no hope, but in Your name. Come, Holy Ghost, with heavenly aid and fill this life which God has made. God gave me this hymn some years ago. Release me now, my life employed to show the Spirit's fruit with joy. So gladly now I yield to Thee that Jesus might be seen in me. Fulfill Your will with gifts of grace that when at last I see Your face, I unashamed before You stand to offer You the life you planned. Closing moments of this service, I'm going to ask Pastor Philip to come and take us into the close of this service. You see, he's my brother. I would need to say to you in his presence, I love this man of God. I trust him. And he's your pastor and you're his people. And so it would be fitting and proper that I step aside. But would you just be quiet just for a moment? Just let the words of this message just touch your heart. Some here today may be feeling pretty tired, pretty empty, pretty dry, pretty weary. God brought us together for a purpose in order that He would fill us afresh with His Holy Spirit. O Thou who camest from above, pure celestial fire to impart, kindle a flame of sacred love on the mean altar of my heart. There let it for thy glory burn with inextinguishable blaze, trembling to its source return. Humble prayer and fervent praise.
Oh, Jesus, confirm my heart's desire to work, speak, and think for Thee. Still, let me guard the holy fire. Still stir up Thy gift in me. I was singing all the songs, folks. Kind of all the conversations. Listen to all the sermons. But Jesus walks among us to anoint us afresh by his Spirit. Phil, would you come?